and they keep congratulating me on a successful relaunch of this festival. And what I want to do is actually tell you all that it was not all my labor at all. Um, Kelly Harris DeBerry came to me when she first heard about this and said, I want to do something new and different and creative. Can we have the space to do it? And I said, absolutely, I trust you. And this programming has been as much her labor as mine. It is her time, it is her energy, it is her passion that have helped make this what it is. So I wanted to recognize Kelly Harris DeBerry. panels and thank you to Pen America for giving us the resources to do that. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to David Baker. Um, David, if you live in New Orleans, there's two or three degrees of David Baker. It's a fun game. <laughs> he has been on too many boards to name, among them the Young Leadership Council and the Junebug Production. Currently. He's chaired so many events, including the Sweet Arts Ball at the CAC, and he is also a journalist with Louisiana Weekly and currently VP of the Press Club. New yes. Orleans. All right. <laughs> Just a little bit. And he also has the dubious distinction of being one of the two people to come to the hospital when my second child was born. So, <laughs> thank you, David. I'll let you bring your people up. Good morning. Thank you all for coming out to listen to us talk about the state of black media. Uh, as we've seen over the past year or two, media in general has been under attack. The black media specifically has always held a very unique position amongst the public. We represent our communities when other media outlets, mainstream media does not represent them. Today's panel will consist of some of the, I'm going to call them the heavy hitters of not just black media, but just media in general. We have Susan Henry. Come on and join us. She is the news station director for WBOK 1230. It is a black-owned radio station. Uh, Renette Dejois-Hall, the president and publisher of Louisiana Weekly, the oldest African-American-focused newspaper in this region. And my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Jarvis Berry, WakeMilla.com, The Times Picayune. <laughs> and my dear, Keegan Moore. She is a producer and editor for WWL TV. All right, good morning. Good morning. How are y'all feeling? Good. Thank y'all for joining us today. So, we are going to get started with just like, if you all want to do a brief intro, each of you, like what brought you to media and what keeps you there. So we need. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Kagan Moore. Like David mentioned, I'm a producer at WWL-TV. Um, if you're not familiar with the station, we are the CBS affiliate here in New Orleans um, and across South Louisiana and uh, Southwest Mississippi. Um, I've been in television news for about 11 years now. Um, and I've kind of been with the same station since I graduated uh, with a BA in broadcast journalism from Loyola University. Um, what brought me to news is um, my father actually was a huge subscriber to um, a local newspaper where I'm from, which is Homo, Louisiana. It's a bayou town um, here in Louisiana, South Louisiana. 
And every Sunday, he read the paper. He read the paper every day, but Sunday was like the biggest day, and you couldn't touch his paper, right? He didn't like it to be unfolded, right? The creases had to be creased, okay? And so once he finished with one section, he would pass me the next section, and that's how we read the newspaper every single Sunday, right? And so that's kind of what got me into news and media and just enjoying writing and, and current events and things like that. So it really was a love from uh, my father who always read the newspaper religiously. Hey, <clears throat> excuse me. Hey, I'm Jarvis DeBerry. Uh, I have been at the Times-Picayune, uh, now NOLA.com, the Times-Picayune since 1997. Uh, what led me to this? Uh, <clears throat> right out of high school, I was in my hometown, right after graduation, looking for a job, and decided, hey, why don't I go apply to my local newspaper? And I didn't think at that point that it was going to be a career, but I was warned from that very first summer that this, the ink can get in your blood and become addictive, and that's what happened. So uh, it's really the only thing that I really kind of devoted myself to as a career. Hi, I'm Susan. I'm the general manager of WBOK. I'm the Black Talk radio station. I'm sorry. <laughs> now who's over now? <laughs> um, what brought me to media? I always loved media. I always knew I wanted to be um, in media in some form. I thought it was writing. I thought, it, I thought the ink was in my blood. But it wasn't. It was in the radio. Um, I started out in music radio, but it was kind of unfulfilling. Um, I knew I wanted to get into talk radio. And when I, I WBOK has been around forever. It's a heritage station. Um, when I moved back to New Orleans, I looked at it and I said, you know what, that's a good match for me, and it's, it's been home for the last six years. Good morning, I'm Renette, and uh, my fellow colleagues said they have ink in their blood. I literally have. <laughs> um, I'm with the Louisiana Weekly. I happen to be the third generation of the people that started it. So I've been around newspapers all my life. Um, probably been in the newspaper business since most of you all were born. Uh, and as I said, I'm the third generation. Paper is 93, going on 94 years old. And uh, we are the largest and oldest in southern Louisiana. Thank you for having me. Thank y'all for the introductions. I love the, the the breadth of experience that we have here. We have Kagan, who is relatively young in her career, and we have like book <laughs> 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 ending. <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about the the changes that we've seen in media, specifically black owned media. I know that two of you are not with black owned publications, but I'm very interested in hearing about how you occupied that space. As a, as a person of color within a mainstream, as it's being called, news outlet. But first I want to hear, like, what do you, Renette and, and Susan, what have y'all seen as far as changes in radio and print when it comes to black media, how they're treated, how we interact, whether it's politically with government now that we see journalism is under attack, has been under attack for the last year. What, what have you seen that has changed? What is different? First, I would say the method of communication is different. I feel like everything is going digital. Um, I always say that black-owned media is a dying breed. 
and it's dying even faster with the onset of technology. Um, just how people communicate, their, um, the, the credibility to me of black media is more, is questioned a lot more. Um, I don't feel like people think that black media outlets provide credible, it, that they're credible news sources, really. What do you um, think that is? Why? Yeah. I think with journalism being under attack, journalism overall is being questioned. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a, there's a lack of value placed in black media. And when, with that lack of value comes a lack of credibility. And so I think that people are just questioning it more. Interesting. Renette, what do you think? Okay, so um, if you go back to our archives, uh, which are housed at the Amstead Research Center on Tulane campus. Uh, back to the 30s. 25. 25. Um, when the paper first started, the paper had, in 1925, the paper had over 15,000 subscribers. Uh, it was flushed with advertisers. Uh, what happened was systematic racism. And uh, the fact, to be quite honest, the fact that when integration started, uh, people of color thought the white man's ice was, old, was colder. And so why be in a black paper or associated with a black paper when I can be in the general market paper and have more credibility? You know, people will look at me differently. Uh, I have more status, and a lot of our readers ran to that. Um, until they got in trouble. And then all of a sudden it became very important. You need to help me out. You need to fix this. You know, you need to talk for me. And um, we continued. I'm uh, not going to lie, it's been a struggle, but uh, I believe that our voices matter, and only we can tell our story, um, because we know of the struggle. And, um, you know, I have, a, I have a little bit of a different take. I keep saying, everybody talks about digital, digital, and yeah, I'm, I'm afraid of it. Not necessarily for black publications, I'm really afraid of it for human, humankind. Um, unless a whole lot of things change. Everybody thinks, they're reporters now. <laughs> you know, everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame. Nobody checks. Nobody double checks. Uh, let me put my spin on things. And you hurt a lot of people. Um, I know I'm trying to be resistant. I have no Facebook account. I'm not on Instagram. I'm it's not true. on Twitter. It's true. <laughs> um, the paper is. 
Thanks to David. <laughs> uh, and she was like, I don't know. But just think about it. But just think about it. Facebook. We have actually allowed a company that started because they wanted to know to get girls on Harvard <laughs> to interfere in our democracy. And nobody is really upset about that. I've been waiting for Facebook to crash. And it hasn't. And I think that's a shame. But I think that as long as black people are still subjugated to racism, and bigotry and lessness, there is a space for black media. And that's just how it is. Do you have any thoughts on Have you ever worked for a black owned news? I haven't. Have you? Your game. Oh. You want to say? I was just asking if, if Kagan or Jarvis had ever worked with no. a, an ethnic outlet. So in your space, working for a, a mainstream um, outlet, what, how, how are you seeing journalism change? Not just in terms of it as an industry, but like your positions and what you do. Um, I'll, start with, I'll start with as an industry, because I know you kind of mentioned that, but just as an industry, um, and it was a conversation that Renette and Jarvis and I were having earlier, and being in New Orleans, it's like a very unique market. Um, I work at a station that is considered a legacy station. So we've been around for 64 years now. And um, it's been a station that has a lot of loyalty, right? So Channel 4, um, not only as a brand in itself, but then also some of the programming that is around our news kind of regular programming, right? So game shows or soap operas or things like that, and that's kind of helped to um, create that legacy station that we have at Channel 4. But over the years, the station has been owned by different outlets, um, whether it has been Velo or Tegna, which is our new kind of parent company, and they have consultants, and they come in and they tell us what works in Dallas, or they tell us what works in D.C., or they tell us what works in in New York and kind of all of these other places. Is that in terms of operations? And operations, in look, um, in um, uh, who works behind the scenes, um, what people like to see in front of the camera. And so I would say probably from every aspect um, and the way that we kind of approach everything from broadcast to promotions and things like that. And things start to become streamlined and they're less unique and they're less, um, you know, they have less of a kind of New Orleans edge and New Orleans tinge to them, which is, it's a very vibrant city, it's a very different place. And so I think that that impacts the way people view us and, and how they feel about what they're getting from us if they, if they think that it is no longer really reflecting or speaking to the community. Um, and then at the same time, there's personnel changes where because things have moved to and pivoted to digital, um, some staff positions have been cut, things get um, <coughs> consolidated, right? So there are positions where we see uh, the, the rise of the MMJ, right? Which is the, the multimedia or the mixed media journalists where they edit their own stories, they report their own stories, and they put their own stories out there. They do kind of every single thing 
where where was a job maybe once before where it took three or four people, now it's just kind of one. And so that's kind of the industry um, changes. But what I do see positive when it comes to digital, because people always talk about, you know, how digital is taking over, and not just talk about it is. There are, we are not only competing with, you know, Channel 6 and other kind of news local outlets, but we're also competing with Netflix, and we're competing with Amazon Prime, and we're competing with all of these things for eyeballs and for, and for viewership. And so when we talk about like pivoting to digital, we also talk about pivoting to video. Um, and what I see as a positive is that because there are kind of all of these outlets um, to tell stories, then there are opportunities to tell different stories. And a lot of times, we try to make sure that our voices are heard in newsrooms and in spaces where we're not necessarily the majority, but we do often kind of try to make sure that we say, hey, these are things that are important to people in different parts of the city, in different parts of the viewing area, in different parts. I'm, I'm sure we might jump into that a little bit more, but that's just kind of. How does that usually go for you when you are in? So you were in a very interesting position at WWL, where you were, Kagan was previously, there was a show called 504, and she was the producer for it. You, you and Shiva were basically coming up with any of, all of the content, you yeah. whatever you wanted. Right. How did you come to be in that position? Oh, goodness. Um, so there was um, a anchor who came on, an anchor who came on from a different station, and um, she really wanted to create a space mm -hmm. on one of our sister stations, which is WPL, and so they allowed um, her to transform the 9 p.m. news. So it was the 9 p.m. newscast at the time, and so it turned into another talk show. Um, but she decided to leave the station. They needed a new host. Um, so they brought Sheba Turk along, who's a co-anchor for the Iowa This Morning News uh, at our station. And then they decided to uh, switch directions as far as producing. So then we got the opportunity to do that. So in the beginning, it was very much so news. We talked about everything from HIV and AIDS to homelessness and poverty. And then we decided to change things up because New Orleans is a city that's so much focused on culture and lifestyle that we kind of wanted to go in that direction. Um, we were also young, we're black, we're millennials, so that's the direction we also took. And so that's the type of things that we started to produce. So a lot of our content was focused on the millennial black population in New Orleans. That's what we did. What did y'all see in terms of the response from the community? Um, the response was really great. We, we got an opportunity to talk to people who had never <laughs> been on mainstream television before, right? So the first time Big Frida was ever <laughs> on you know, local television in a way that he could talk about himself and perform and do all those things was on, you know, our show and kind of different things like that. So we, we, we had a lot of really cool conversations and we talked to a lot of really cool people. And that was in 2014. So that was before, like, and Big Free has always been somebody in the local community. Bounce music, by the way, if you guys aren't familiar, um, which is local to New Orleans and the culture here. But Big Free has always been somebody that's been a part of the New Orleans community in that way, but not necessarily on that type of platform. So we were able to take the things that we grew up with and that we were interested in, that people were actually doing and actually talking about, and giving it a really cool platform. At the time, we kind of shied away from the idea of being a black show and doing black things. But I think towards, because you can be pigeonholed, and kind of like you talked about earlier, Renette talked about earlier, there's this idea of like, you know, being pigeonholed and you don't want people to think of you in a certain way because there is a negative connotation, unfortunately, from others that comes with that idea. 
But I, I thought we created some really cool content and we were able to have some really interesting conversations um, with, with the show. So, yeah. I got... Um... I got the notice that I've been hired as an intern at the Times Speaking Union during my uh, last semester of college. I was at Washington University in St. Louis. And I became very, very nervous about the job. And I asked Greg Freeman, who was then uh, a black man who was a columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, if he would go to lunch with me so I could tell him about my concerns. And I said, I'm going to be an intern at the Times Picayune newspaper in New Orleans, and that's probably going to mean that I have a crime beat, and I'm really concerned about being the person that makes black people look bad. And what should I do? And Greg just chuckled. He said, you tell the truth. And those, that, that response from him has kind of been my watchword. Uh, throughout my career, you tell the truth. Uh, and the truth will include those things that are positive and negative and at all points in between. You just tell the truth and don't, and don't have this, this idea that you have to go in and, and shift, shift people's thinking one way or the other. You just go in and you tell the truth. You tell what you see and not what your, your editors are telling you to see, <laughs> but you tell what you actually see and observe. And that, that lesson from him was invaluable uh, to my career uh, as a reporter and even as, as an opinions columnist. Um, you asked, I think, a more general question about what it's like. Um, and I think the, the primary feeling is being conspicuous like, okay, you're the black columnist. And even if that's not my designation, that's how I'm perceived. And because I'm perceived that way, there are all sorts of expectations that are placed upon my shoulders and only upon my shoulders. By your colleagues? By everybody. By everybody. By people within the paper, by people from outside the paper. Why haven't you written about that? Well, maybe it doesn't interest me. But, you know, or maybe I don't have an opinion on it. Or maybe I don't think it's as bad as you think it is. Or maybe I just couldn't get to it. You know, like, the, the, the beauty of papers like Louisiana Weekly or radio stations like WBOK, if you know that you have a predominantly black audience, <clears throat> then you can really devote your attention to all of those things, right? Mm -hmm consistently and, and make that your entire focus. If you and, and you have a staff, right? You have different people. You have not just Renette and not just Susan, but you have a whole staff dedicated to that particular thing. If it's just one person, then it's kind of unrealistic to expect one person to write about everything black. You know, and, and, and everything that some that animates some black person or black reader you want that black person to have an opinion about it or write about it. And so, so I'm conspicuous. And so that is the, the one thing that is, has always been consistent. Especially more so that, okay, we did have at one point two black male columnists. I'm always being called Lola's for some reason. Uh, <laughs> so I'm even more conspicuous uh, now that I am the, the only one, right? 
Um, and so that, that, is, that is the chief feeling. And I was told something a few months ago that I had never known before. I was talking to a local writer whose interests include photography. And she was telling me that uh, we were talking about Frederick Douglass, who she was explaining to me was the most photographed person of the 19th century. There are more photographs of him than exist than anybody in that era. But she was also telling me about his great love for photography. Like he was really into it as a concept and an art form, and that he gave several lectures on the topic <clears throat> of photography during his life. And then at a couple of occasions, Frederick Douglass, while standing up to give these lectures on photography, was heckled and booed by people who wanted him to give a speech similar to what to a slave is the 4th of July. And I was like, wow, if Frederick Douglass can decide, I'm going to write about something other than race, and I'm going to talk about something like photography, then I know that I have permission <laughs> to do that, right? I mean, I know that, right? But that's, but that's kind of the, 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 the fight that we're always engaged in, this expectations of, that others are placing upon us. And at the same time, balancing that with a sense of accountability. Because I go to church in this community. I, I participate in this community. And inevitably, some old black woman in her 80s is like, baby, you need to keep doing what you're doing. You know, you're out here and it's just like, okay, I'm accountable. I'm accountable. So I can't, I can't shirk this responsibility. I can't say, well, I'm not going to do such and such and such and such, you know, because if, if I don't do it, then it's not going to be done. If I don't address it, then it's not going to be addressed. But at the same time, I don't want to be, I don't want to be made to feel like that that's all I can do, or that's all that matters, or that's the, that's the extent of my skill set. Do you hear at all ever that you might be writing about things that are like too black, or like what's the, what's the focus on black people? Do you ever hear that? I hear it all the time from commenters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I hear nothing but that from people in the comment section, yes. What's your policy on responding to comments? Because ours aren't even activated. Our policy... We, we choose not to participate. <laughs> <laughs> there is a belief, I don't know that it's borne out, been borne out, that if you have the writers of stories responding in the comment section, that that is an alert to people who are in the comment section that these are real human beings. And that they will sometimes respond as such and that it has um, a civilizing effect. I do think that the comment section now is better than it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, although I didn't spend a lot of time in it 10 years ago because I thought it was just completely and utterly toxic. But with moderation and even with participation, it has been a little different. But at the same time, to, to, to answer your question, yeah, uh, the, the general policy is that, generally speaking, and this is probably true, I mean, I know it's true with talk radio because that's all they do, and to an extent it's, it's true with television, 
that engagement has become like the watchword in the industry, right? You want to engage people, and people want to have an interactive experience with just about anything. It's why you see CNN or MSNBC running people's tweets on the Chiron. You know, it's, it's a sense of keeping people <coughs> engaged. So the comment section is, is a way of, of that type of reader engagement. Um, it really depends, honestly, for me on the day and how much stuff I have to do. You know, and how important I think the topic is, um, whether or not I have the time or the space or even a mental space to engage with commenters. But no, my 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 editors and the people in the at the paper have never told me that I write too much about black stuff. You know, the people who are my critics mm -hmm. think that that's all I do. You know, and then of course. And that any and every column that mentions racism is a column too many, you know, for, for some readers who think that, number one, it doesn't exist, or number two, I'm making things up, and why does it matter, and that's all you talk about, and I'm making a problem worse, and I'm the real racist, and yada, 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 yada. Uh, thank you. So in terms of supporting black media in general, not just black journalists, um, Renette and Susan specifically, can y'all talk about what, what the support has been for not just the, the journalists themselves, but the actual outlets, and how that's changed, or is it improving, is it getting worse? You mean financial support? Or financial support, support or advertisers. <laughs> advertiser uh, support, of course, is going to be always a struggle. I think it's a struggle in general, I don't know for you, Renette, but it's a struggle across the board. It's a struggle with advertisers because they often don't want to attach their name or their brand to that type of content, what they call left content or radical content, <laughs> racist content. Um, they often don't want to attach their brand to it, so it's hard, it's hard for us to find advertisers. Um, if I can jump in, I have to have a very specific question for you, given mm -hmm. the situation that y'all just experienced. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that, with, given what happened with Energy earlier this mm -hmm. year, and how they reacted to the content that y'all were yeah. producing. They Do all, you feel like they would have done that had you not been a black owned No, black no, and station? I feel like that was, um, we were targeted, we were a, a black media outlet and they knew that we needed the funds and in order to control the message, it was easy for him just to pull the money away. And that happens often, that, that actually happens a, a, a lot. Um, if they want to, we're smaller and we don't have we don't carry the weight of like a WWL or a Times Picayune. So if they pull it, they think, oh, I'll pull it from WBOK and nothing will happen. No one will know about it. It won't make, you know, it won't make mainstream news. Um, it did, though. It did make me. <laughs> so you like it. It did, um, Does everybody you, know what happened? No. Yeah. Oh, to give you all a bit of context, so during the Intergy, how many of y'all are like in New Orleans and are familiar with the Intergy plan in New Orleans East? WBOK was... Vocal. I mean, vocal about the fact that people in the East said they did not want that plant to be there. Like, we ran the same, we ran several articles on it. To be fair, they don't really advertise with us, so they had no leverage to, to dangle above us. Mm -hmm. above us. But the, um, when they were producing their content, Intergy, an exec at Intergy, got upset 
and say they were focusing too much We're focusing on too much on the opposition. So pulled their advertising, which was uh, $20,000. $20, and it didn't tell you that they were doing it. No, they, they just canceled it. They just put a stop payment on the check in the account. Yep. Yeah. Because they didn't like the content that we were putting out there. So that happens often when they want to control the content. Just because they're supporting the station, they want to control the content. Um, How do you respond to that type of? Yeah, well, I think action. that we can just say we have to just take the punch because I'm, I don't think that we should tailor our message by lining our pockets with you know dollars that from companies that want to shape the message mm -hmm. or you you know determine our content. So the, I mean that just adds to the struggle, the financial struggle. Um, I think across the board, people I think people are more open to black media now. Um, I think once we open the once we started digitizing mm -hmm. our content, I think that has opened up doors to a different audience. That millennial audience is very technological. Um, that's how they communicate. Um, and I think that it's just communication. I don't always think that it's a lot of action with them. I think that the hashtag, you know, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter is just a hashtag because you saw very few people out, actually out in the streets, you know, doing things. Um, but I think that that, that that outlet does open up to a new audience. Um, Uh, yeah, so um, I have experience, I used to work at a radio station. There was a 10-year lag between me being at the paper and me being back at the paper. Um, and I went to work for radio. And I went to work for actually WILD before it was owned by the Bakewells. It was owned by uh, a black group out of Chicago, Interurban Broadcasting. And uh, they were the number one rated radio station in the market. Uh, they were really rated in the top 10 across the country. And um, they struggled with advertising. Uh, and then they sold the paper, and I went to work for the paper, I'm sorry, the radio station. And then I went to work for B97, which was a pop station. It's owned by Easy Communication out of Virginia, I believe. And they were at the time, we're talking about in the 90s, at the time, the late 80s, 90s, early 90s. At the time, they were the fifth-ranked station in the market. But their sales were almost three times as much as WILD. And it was amazing. You know, when you, when you approach the advertisers and you say, but I thought the purpose is for you to make money. Therefore, <laughs> you want to uh, bring your message to as many people as possible. And for whatever reason, and it, it lasted, well, not for whatever reason, it is still today, the perception of what a black listener or a black reader is. And um, unfortunately, it's been perpetrated by, you know, white media, which is that we are all thugs, we are ignorant, 
we are poor, we uh, are criminals, and we don't want to advertise for those people to come into my place of business. And, uh, or we'll get them through the general market, which, you know, is very disheartening because Believe it or not, my readership is about 60-40. I have a lot of white people that read my paper. Because they want to know the real deal and how we actually think, how we actually react to what's going on. So, uh, yeah, it's Except, as I said earlier in the beginning, when we had all of I mean, 10, 15,000 people reading the paper in 1925, was like maybe 100,000 people. I wish I had that many people reading me now. Um, and actually, I probably do, because I'm a well-read paper. I'm just not a well-purchased paper. <laughs> uh, Last time we did an audit, and I'm still 50 cents, believe it or not, because while it's not making me rich, I want to be affordable so that anybody can read the news. But um, one person will spend that 50 cents, and I'm told that 11 other pairs of eyes will read that one paper. Uh, so our message gets out. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't put a lot of money in the bank, which will allow us to hire more people, cover more things, address more topics. Um, but, like I said, we've been on it for 94 years. It's getting harder and harder to do. But... Uh, it's still, still worthwhile. Um, we still feel that, you know, the message is needed. The, the best thing that I think happened within the last two weeks was the comment that Don Lemon made. <laughs> and it's been, it's some of the things that we at the weekly try and do is to point out that, you know, we aren't those stereotypes that, you know, the typical white person thinks that we are. And it's my mission to make sure that when there is a domestic terrorist, we put their pictures on, on the front page of the paper. You know, because we're tired of seeing the Times Picayune or WWL. You always know when the perpetrator of something terrible is white. Because you never they never put their picture up. So we say, we're gonna do it this way. We're gonna show you that it's not just black folks that commit crime, it's white folk. And as Don Lemon said, right now what the 
United States has to worry about is the angry white male. They're committing all of the domestic terrorism right now. So, but you don't see, you know, them suffering. I was just going to say that you probably know Terry Bakke. He would argue with you that when he was page one energy, he made sure to put white people's faces <laughs> on the front whenever there was such a thing. Uh, but but to get to your question, I, I think it's really, I think it's really sad what what both Susan and uh, Renette have described this this attitude that you know the black product is necessarily inferior and that we don't have to pay as much in advertising or we don't need to advertise and you know it it is pervasive across that 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 mindset is pervasive across our society and it's also pervasive across all kind of forms of media there have been so many times that i have desired to run an experiment like how would people respond to this particular column or argument if i were to take my picture off of it or take my name off it so they can't see it because i know that just my mere face is triggering to some people. I mentioned Lola's Eli earlier, and, and this was really cemented years ago uh, when Lola's was writing more columns than I was. He wrote a column about Cleo Fields, who was a state senator in Louisiana. And the question he was asking was this, was Cleo Fields corrupted or was he corrupt when he went into office? So that was the question. <laughs> and so Lois's syllogism was, all Louisiana politicians are corrupt. Cleo Fields is a Louisiana politician. <laughs> Therefore, Cleo Fields <laughs> is corrupt. And the next week, we got a letter to the editor condemning Lois Eric Eli for defending Cleo Fields. And I'm staring at this letter. <laughs> And, I, and it occurred to me, you saw a black man writing about a black man and assumed just on that basis of the information what the column was about and wrote a whole letter in response to it, right? And so it, it, was, it, was, it was a revelation to me that a lot of readers aren't offended by my argument, they're offended by my presence. It's not, it's not the argument that bothers them or troubles them is that I am saying it, that I am in the paper, that I have this position, and how dare I tell them, you know, what this ought to be or what things ought to be like. And so this, all of this, I think, is, is of a piece, that this, this knee-jerk, anti-black reaction that is so pervasive in our country, it doesn't just hit the black-owned outlets. It is the black people who are in the majority-owned outlets. It's why Donald Trump is singling out April Ryan and singling out Abby Phillips and responding to Yamiche Alcindor that way. They're conspicuous. They're, they're standing out in a way that others are not. And so he just, because he sees a black face, assumes stupidity 
or assumes that they don't know what they're talking about, or assumes a lack of talent, or assumes a bias, or assumes... How dare they question you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Or, or, or assumes, like, you know what my politics are, or assume that you know how I voted, or assume all of these things simply because you see that it's a black person's face, or it's a black producer, or it's a black-owned radio station. And, and I really wish, and, and one of the things I appreciate about black-owned radio and also about the black press, like the newspapers, is that if you read them, like if you really, really read them or even listen to them, you will see this wide range of black opinion and thought, mm -hmm. right? Like, and yet people still are walking around with like this idea yeah. that, <laughs> that all of us are thinking, it's like, like I mean, we're all in agreement, yeah. like that we're all in lockstep about, about everything. <laughs> like, have you read the opinion pages of the Louisiana Weekly? Have you listened to people mm -hmm. arguing on WBOK? Right, <laughs> you know? two black people arguing yeah. different points of view. <laughs> Passionately arguing, right? right? Exactly. You know, and so that, that to me is, is the great shame of all of this, is that, that we're still flattened out. Uh, we're, we're just assumed to be these one-dimensional racial figures who don't like Frederick Douglass was pushing back against have the complexity and the nuances that human beings have. I want to talk a little bit about the support for black journalists, black outlets from, not just the advertisers, but from the actual public. Um, Renette, you talked about how there was a decline in paid readership, even though the paper's still being read. What do you feel is the responsibility of a black community when it comes to black outlets and black journalists? Do you feel that there is a responsibility to support? Um, is there is there like this? Basically, yeah, do you feel like there's a need to support, or like there's a, a responsibility of the black community to support the paper that is talking about their, their lives and issues? And how have you seen that change over the years? Uh, I absolutely do, because we are the voice of the black community, whether people want to believe it or not. Um, and our voice can get louder, and more powerful for black people if we have their support. Um, you know, I, I remember as, as a little girl that um, it was talked about, it was accepted that in every black household, at least in, in, in New Orleans, you had the Louisiana Weekly, you had the Jet, you had the Ebony, and you had the Chicago Defender. You just had, whether you read them or not, you had them because you were supporting your people, because they were doing things to better the people, our people as a whole. And, um, Again, you know, we can have a long talk about whether integration really was good for the black race or not. In some respects it was, in some respects it wasn't. You know, uh, I'm going to repeat it. White man's ice is colder. Soon as integration started, we stopped going to our black doctors, we stopped going to our black 
uh, supermarkets because we thought, you know, white man stuff was better. And all of a sudden, the money that used to turn over three, four, five times in our community disappeared. And uh, again, we get support when people are in trouble. You know, they come to us. Can you help me? Can you fix this? Your responsibility to help me and to fix this. Um, so, in that respect, I don't know, did I answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like it is black people's responsibility to support black media. We are the voice of the people. But um, I feel like if you don't value yourself and you're running from that reflection in the mirror and you don't really, you're trying to hide that or mask that in some way, you don't see the value in yourself, so you're not going to see the value externally in black media. I think that's what happens to a lot of black people. They don't support it because they don't really see the value in it because mm -hmm. they don't really see that, that value in themselves. So I think, I think it's a valuation problem. Can I say, some, can I say something more generally, though? Mm -hmm. I think... People in general, the people in the United States in general, are subscribing to things less and less. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's like that old adage when uh, white America gets a cold, black people get the flu, mm -hmm. that you know, when you have, in general, people aren't subscribing to magazines the way they used to subscribe to magazines or newspapers you, the way they used to subscribe to newspapers. I remember um, a few years ago, I was on the board of a student newspaper at my alma mater in St. Louis. And when I was in school, I subscribed to the New York Times, I subscribed to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, et cetera, et cetera. We asked this college educated, well, they were in college at that point, like how many of you subscribe to anything? The question was anything, it wasn't even limited to newspapers. Netflix, Hulu, HBO, newspapers, magazines, etc., and nobody raised their hand. And we were like, wow, you know, if these are, I mean, because all of us remember subscribing to things. I mean, I had Highlights Magazine, I had Boys Life, I had, you know, <laughs> just going back really, really early in my career, there was my life, there were things that I subscribed to that I, anticipated getting in the mail, mm -hmm. right, that I would write away to get, you know, and so I feel like in general, mm -hmm. our society, maybe it's the digitization of everything. I think so. I think it's, it's how it's you moving, get your news. Moving away. Yeah, I think it's really I, how you get your news, too. I, I, I think it's more uh, how we treat and feel about education now, and the fact that you know, education is, I don't think education is no, no longer a priority. Um, you know, subjects that I was taught in grade school have disappeared. Uh, you know, civics, Louisiana history, uh, U.S. history, <laughs> world history. It's not taught anymore. You know, you don't teach spelling. You don't teach cursive. You, I mean, 
I have been appalled, and it's been years now. You ever get people that still write letters or even emails? Do you have you ever got one that's grammatically correct? <laughs> you know, and 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 you know, we're so excited about can we say communicate in 142 characters now? You know, it, it's it's what is ruining our quest for newspaper and knowledge and, and just wanting to know. Um, it's fueling this nationalism that we have going on now. You know, we want to, we, we, we just want to keep to ourselves and not expand and not be, who would ever thought that being smart is a negative? You know? But now, you know, I, I remember when you used to say about a president, I want somebody smarter than me <laughs> to run the country, you know? And unfortunately, I think I have, my nine-year-old grandson has more smarts right now than 45. <laughs> but I think that is the decline for news in general. And I just want you to know Highlights is still public. Yeah. You know, um, so there, there must be a still a good readership or subscriber base. I don't know. I taught a class at Xavier, and I asked the kids in the first day of class, how do you get your news? When people are getting their news in 140 characters, that's a problem. The, the number one answer was Twitter. They get their news from Twitter. Now, I don't, I don't tweet or anything like that, but I know it's 140 characters, right? And if yeah. that's how you're getting it, they never click and go to the article. They do not read the extended article. They don't even read the highlights in the article. They are just reading the Twitter, like the Twitter articles, the, the synopsis, I guess, and then people's comments about the article. Yeah. That is a serious problem. Mm -hmm. and, and to that point, uh, another colleague of mine who's teaching at Loyola described it as this generation has become passive consumers of news. Mm -hmm. So they don't go looking for news. Mm -hmm. They wait for the news to come to them. Mm -hmm. So it's it's yeah. it's like that. Like I will see it if it hits it comes in my Twitter if it hits feed. my Twitter feed or if it hits my Facebook feed. I'm not gonna type in New York Times nytimes.com or WashingtonPost.com because that takes too much effort. You know, I'm, not <laughs> I'm not gonna go to a website. I'm not gonna go to anything. But if it pops up, then it must be important. Kagan, how have y'all seen at WWL the interaction with well, millennials? You describe yourself as a millennial. Yeah. And the uses of social media. Y'all have a lot of people coming to the website to actually look at news stories. So I think uh, what's really interested in producing the 504 over the past five years. So it was uh, it, it was uh, ran on television from 2013 and it ended in June of, of this year, was that we have many guests who would come on the show and they would say, well, can I find this on YouTube? Can I find this on Facebook? Because either they didn't have cable or they didn't have a television at all. And that was fairly common, right? So they didn't even have like the things <laughs> that you would need to even watch themselves, either do an interview or perform or anything like that. 
Um, and so I think, and kind of going back to what we were just talking about on the panel, is that you have to, and I do see it as a challenge because I am in the broadcast business, right? So my number one screen is TV. But then we talk about computers and, and, and uh, your, your phones and things like that, and how do you kind of tailor all this content to all of these different places because you consume these mediums differently. So what, the way you see something on television is not how you consume it on a laptop. It's not how you consume it on a mobile device in your hand. And I think the unique opportunity that we do have is to kind of reimagine the way that we do kind of uh, disseminate this information. And it's a, it's a huge challenge because we have done things a certain way for however long, but I think we're in as, as much as it is a growing pain and it, as much as things are changing as, as quickly as we, it is changing, I think there are unique opportunities to reach people in a different way and I think what's interesting about the internet is that there are spaces that are niche, right? So there are opportunities that you can reach like very specific people in very specific places. And I think that there's opportunities to create impactful uh, content for those folks in a very targeted way. And there are ways to really meet the people that are either your um, subscribers or, or viewership or potential subscribers and potential viewership in places that are beyond kind of where you are kind of stuck. So I think that when it comes to the website, I think that's great for like long form, obviously, but Facebook is probably our biggest engagement. And then if people want to click, right, if they want to do that extra click, which takes extra work, <laughs> then they'll click <laughs> and they'll go to the website and find information there. But the biggest thing is, is video. So we're trying to figure out how do we post more video and how do we make sure that that video has subtitles? Because we know that people watch the videos with either um, with the sound off, because that's the thing that people do now too. So we're trying to tailor the content to the way that people consume it. And so I think that the, that's a really cool challenge right now. It's a huge challenge, but I think it's an opportunity to get really creative. How many people are watching videos with no sound on? Yeah. Most people watch it with no sound. Most. Okay. So we're gonna open to questions now. Y'all have any final thoughts y'all want to? Okay. Saw some hands back there. Does anyone have any questions? Or are you responding to my question? <laughs> What's your question? Um, so to the point about Facebook being instrumental in um, dismantling our democracy, anyone who's read the news in the past couple of days knows they're in huge hot water right now. And um, I'm wondering, I remember reading in 2011 or 2012 that Mark Zuckerberg said, you know, at some point in your future, most people are going to be getting all their news from social media. And when I read it, it sounded crazy to me at the time that that could even be possible. And then not only did it happen, but it happened to our country's massive detriment. So I'm wondering um, if any of you have any hopeful and optimistic predictions that might sound crazy now, but that you have some insight into how things could work um, where people were consuming and paying for in one way or another, smart media, again. Well, I'm personally curious to see how it will work out with, some outlets actually are doing that right now. Like New York Times, you have to pay for that after a certain amount of articles. You have to do it with Wall Street Journal. The larger national, international media are doing that. From our perspective, I don't know if, if that's something that we want to explore. This is really up to you. I've seen city businesses doing it, but I don't know how that's going for them. It's, um, I personally feel like if you have to pay for the actual printed copy of the paper, if you have one, then you should not have to pay for that content online. 
particularly if it's going to help to expand access for people. I think of journalism as a public service. I really do. I also feel like we should get loan forgiveness from the government. <laughs> <because> <laughs> public service. Well, they do it for lawyers. Yeah. So um, I will pass this to y'all. I'm not sure. Maybe there's an opportunity to create a social media that's only like verified mm -hmm. news outlets. And maybe you can subscribe to that, but there's no like reposting <laughs> of anything from yeah. anywhere else. Because obviously that's a lot of the, the trouble that we got into with Facebook. People just kind of reposting things that had a certain slant or just reaffirmed their crazy beliefs or just were super outlandish and outrageous that had no, uh, no factual basis at all. So maybe there's an opportunity to create a social media where facts actually live. I know it's not going to come across as optimistic because it's not optimistic. Um, I don't think anything is going to change until really we like start teaching critical thinking skills again. I, I look at Facebook and some of the things my friends share. I was like, really? Like seriously? You you actually believe this? Why? Like why why did you believe something this crazy and you're sharing it? But the, but the impulse is so strong out there to, okay, well, this, this confirms my idea of what the world is like, so I'm going to share it. Don't you want to share it? It's like, no, that's stupid. You know, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing this? And, it, and, it's a, and I hate the, the all-size argument, but it, it, this really is people on all sides. And until we can convince people that don't believe something just because it confirms what you already believe. You know, and, and, and that's gonna take education. I mean, yeah. that's gonna take critical thinking. That's gonna take, you know, starting in kindergarten and first grade, asking children to support their argument and support how they found an answer. So it's not gonna happen as quickly as Zuckerberg's prediction came through, but maybe at some point when we start reteaching critical thinking skills, then that in and of itself will kind of clean up some of the toxicity that we see out there. Oh, no, I agree with you. No, no. I totally agree. <laughs> it would also take, uh, I guess I'm going to bash my, my uh, broadcast people, to go back to programming Real stuff, not real stuff. Take the real stuff that you're programming off the air and go back to dramas, you know. But the fact that you have sold a bill of goods to people who are uneducated, that all of this reality is really reality and not scripted, <laughs> um, and that, oh. So they took this random person and now that person is a star because, you know, she's arguing with somebody they said is her friend who she never met, but she's getting <laughs> big money to do it. Um, so now I want to do it. I want my 15 minutes of fame. You know, and everybody wants their 15 minutes of fame so they can hopefully reach the end of the rainbow, but as a pot of gold, you know, we have 
we have allowed a few people who have made big bucks off of this to really um, allow for the miseducation of a whole populace. You know, so we don't, we don't, we don't care about facts. We don't care about knowing anything, as long as I can get me some cash. And if it's to act like a fool, <laughs> then I'm gonna act like a fool. And 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 that's really very disheartening. And um, you know, I'm, I I I guess as a. a tell people all the time. I know that I have crossed over into the senior citizens category when I I don't understand. Why are we excited about sharing what I ate for dinner? <laughs> Who cares that I like this hamburger? Or why should I get upset if I don't have enough likes because I like this kind of hamburger. Who wants to know if I got gas? <laughs> you know? When there's so much other stuff that's going on. You know, we should be worried about why we have little children being caged. You know? And um I read an article recently in the New York Times which mentioned how technology always favors tyrannies. And, and I'm really concerned that your outreach to Facebook is doing exactly, you're reaching out to the very echo chamber that we're trying to avoid and that what we really need to do is really promote back the quality of traditional media and somehow, you know, brand the fact that, you, no, you don't get the truth in 140 characters. You get it through very solid journalism and, and critical thinking. And we gotta just give up social media as a news source, period, and, and rebrand our own media as like, hey, this is the truth, remember? I wouldn't think of social media as a news source. I would think of it as a platform to reach people. Um, and that's just the way that I guess I would kind of approach it. It's a, another means to get that information to folks because they're gonna be there, I feel like anyway. It's, 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 there's billions of people on Facebook literally and then Twitter has however hundreds of millions and then Instagram and kind of all of these things. So I think there's an opportunity to use those platforms in ways that are responsible. And no, we cannot um, regulate how folks decide to share information or the ways in which that they decide to connect, but we can stand there and be a place that is, that has facts and that does have truth and are telling stories that impact folks and we're hopefully giving them <laughs> a landing space or a landing pad to know that this information is right and that this, this information is true and this is where you can be informed. Or do you, or do you legitimize what you're, what this, this, this form of media that shouldn't be legitimate? I'm not really to legitimize social media, is that yeah, what you right. mean? Um, I mean, honestly, I, I was on Facebook 
the same year that it started, right? 2004, I was 19 years old. So that's when I started mine. And it started as a personal way to connect with people, right? So then as it started to grow and as it opened from universities to kind of the general public, I think that media outlets saw it as an opportunity to reach more people. So that's what they kind of used as a new platform, as a new media platform to reach folks. But in its initial kind of iteration, it was a way that I could tell my friend happy birthday on their wall. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. I was going to say that, that one of the things Renette said earlier was that she's keeping the, the, the price of the paper at 50 cents so people can afford it. I had a former colleague who has a kind of opposite idea about that. He believes that newspapers sent the message to people that their product wasn't that valuable because they were selling it so cheaply. Mm -hmm. And so once you fix your price to something cheap, that you give people the impression that it's not worth that much. So compare the price of a newspaper 30 years ago to now and do the same for a cup of coffee. You know, look at what Starbucks has done by managing to get people to pay $5.50 for a cup of coffee. I mean, if you go back three generations, people would say, what? I, why would I pay that much money for, you know, coffee? Or I even, or, or, even <laughs> or even a television. Can you imagine 20 years ago, 30 years ago, like getting a bill every month that was like $100 or something just to watch television? But people are willing to pay that. And, and those other companies steadily increase their prices. People keep subscribing. And again, it's, it's a theory, I don't know if it can be proved or disproved, uh, but the idea you said to bolster the traditional media, the, the problem is people are running away from it. Is it because they don't think it's valuable anymore? I don't know. Is it because, it, I don't know what the reason is, but I know that people aren't engaging in reading the newspaper. Like, the generation behind us is probably not gonna have stories like your story about keeping the creases of the newspaper straight, you know? I mean, my wife tells a story about her grandparents reading the paper that way. But I don't think you're gonna have children growing up now who have those kinds of stories to tell, just because they didn't have that experience. 